You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Hello and welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor podcast. I am very excited to be joined today by Captain James Dickens. Uh, Captain Dickens is a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Services Commission Corps, whose mission is to promote, protect, and advance the health and safety of the nation. Captain James Dickens received his Doctor of Nursing Practice from Texas Tech Health Sciences Center, Lubbock and currently serves in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Dallas. Previously, he served in the office of the U.S. Secretary for Health as the Senior Program Manager for the Office of Minority Health in HHS Region 6. He is an experienced registered nurse and board-certified family nurse practitioner with over 30 years of federal healthcare experience. Captain Dickens also served as the officer in charge of the Commission Corps Ebola response at the Monrovia Medical Unit Ebola Treatment Unit in Monrovia, Liberia, West Africa, and as the USPHS officer in charge of the COVID-19 response and as the officer in charge of USPHS operations Artemis response for unaccompanied children. Captain Dickens is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. He is also the recipient of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners National Towers Pinnacle Award, the Texas Tech Health Sciences Center School of Nursing Excellence in Clinical Care Award, and recipient of the Meritorious Service Medal, the second highest honor award in the USPHS. Welcome to the show, Captain Dickens. Thank you for the opportunity and certainly the opportunity to address our colleagues. Uh, thank you. I appreciate your time and making yourself available. Uh, I have lots of questions for you uh, just because I'm curious about the work that you do. Um, but before we get started with that, we'll start how I start every show is how did you get started in the world of nursing? Well, you know, I I wish I could say that I had a dream and Florence uh, Nightingale came to me in the middle of the night, but unfortunately that wasn't the case. I started off as a corpsman or a medic or bedpan commando in uh, DOD for the Air Force. And and my thirst uh, for uh, the quest for medical knowledge increased during that time. And I started off as a, a, a surgical technician, went on to um, do the, uh, the medic program, paramedic, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, EMT program, and, um, and, and sequentially um, did, the, uh, did an associate degree, bachelor's degree in nursing, master's in nursing, but mine has all been affiliated with the federal government and with my, my professional career has been affiliated with me being a part of the federal government in some capacity for the last 30 years. And so 
very fortunate in that regard, but uh, um, I was not a true pipeline student. I, I took the long and sundry route um, to get to where I'm at. Uh, so um, you mentioned you are, uh, and by the way, thank you for your service in the military and your continued service with, with the um, uh, USPHS. Um, now I have a question for you because I was a corpsman in the Navy. Uh, that's how I got my start in life. And that's where kind of my uh, passion kind of um, continued with the medical world. Uh, um, so um, how did that experience really bring you into nursing, right? Like, like what was the transition that you said, like, I want to do nursing and you didn't go to some other professional well, route? Um, you know, I, I worked in the operating room as a surgical scrub nurse and I was I was suturing and putting in catheters and IVs long before I ever became a nurse, probably 14 years before I became a nurse. So I was, uh, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and working in the operating room at a very high level on, you know, very sophisticated cases in the military. You know, we get an opportunity to work above our scope a lot of times with the supervision of nurses and physicians and the like, you know, our, our allied health professionals and what have you. And um, <clears throat> I read an article. While I was in Alaska, actually, I was stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base in Alaska, Anchorage, Alaska. And I read an article in a nursing magazine that one of my, uh, one of my uh, staff nurses, OR nurses, had left in the room. And this magazine article talked about the future of nursing. And, um, you know, this was, this was pre-future of nursing. But it <laughs> talked about the future of nursing, like, you know, the nursing, there would be a shortage of nurses for 30 years. And my being a son of the South and from the Mississippi Delta in Northeast Louisiana, um, you know, my, my little pea brain um, got to churning. And I thought maybe this is the route I should go. I won't have to worry about any layoffs or any uh, job insecurities for the next 30 years. And, and lo and behold, it, it has worked out to that, uh, that way for me. And, um, and I've had the privilege of working with all of our DOD counterparts, Navy, Air Force, uh, combat medics uh, in Afghanistan and, and the like, and have a healthy respect for them. And a lot of those uh, uh, guys and gals have transitioned from corpsmen, combat medics, and the like, uh, surgical technicians like myself, into nursing and have uh, 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 made a profound impact uh, on, on, on the uh, profession of nursing and as nurse practitioners, academics, and, and the like. So we've done a lot in that space. But but, but that genesis really came from reading that article. And I couldn't tell you the magazine. I couldn't tell you if it was a long article. At that time, it probably was a pretty short article because my attention span didn't seem to be that long uh, as, a, as a young adult. Um, but, but I read that article and it, it clearly stated that the career field for nursing was going to be, there was going to be a great need for the next 30 years. And, um, and again, you know, fast forward to 2022 and, and, and that's where we are. That's awesome. Uh, it's weird how these uh, sort of light bulbs go off for us uh, as we do things. Uh, I had no intention of going into the nursing world. Uh, I had worked with a couple of really great PAs that they had talked me into the PA world. Um, and I, when I left the Navy, uh, I was looking into PA and the bachelor's degree PA program became a master's degree PA program. And I said, there's no way I'm doing a master's degree. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what else do I, can I do? And I so so just <laughs> so just like you, I got accepted to the University of Washington's community program for PA, and I think it was an associate degree. You had to have enough hours for an associate degree, and you were awarded a bachelor's. And so I got accepted to that program, and it was a community-based program. 
but all the CRNAs in Alaska uh, that I worked with in the operating room were adamant about going to nursing school, but you had to have a bachelor's because these guys were dinosaurs. They were all diploma CRNAs and had went to a one-year program in DOD to uh, pass gas or, or to provide anesthesia services. Right. And, and it was a one-year completion program. And um, so that's, that's what, uh, you know, that's what prompted me to go down that road. I really wanted to be a CRNA, but as you indicated, all the programs started to elevate from baccalaureate programs to master's level programs. And a lot of the CRNA programs started to close down because they were, you know, seven chair programs, very small programs, not all, but a lot of them were uh, some of the DOD programs and some of the larger schools are a little bit larger, but, uh, but that was the impetus. And, and um, I am happy to say that all my, all my degrees have been paid for uh, by the federal government in some capacity. So DOD, as you're well aware of the GI Bill and the like, um, I got my bachelor's uh, uh, funded through that. Uh, I was in a HRSA program for my master's, as well as um, uh, Air Force Reserves. And then my doctorate was paid for by post 9-11 GI Bill. So I've been very fortunate. It's been a very rewarding career uh, for the last 30 plus years. And I have no complaints in this space. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, and that, and that's a good, good, good thing to note. Uh, now I'm going to, I'm going to track back a little bit just because I'm, I'm super interested in your, where were you in life when you decided that you're going to join the military? Because a lot of people like, including myself, I use the military as a way of, I had really no other path. I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, um, raised by a single mom. Um, sure. uh, lived in a tiny apartment and didn't do very well in high school, uh, you know, um, and one, I didn't have a lot of other pathways. So this was really a pathway for me to do something with my life because I did not see college in my future. Um, so I used the military as a way and I always had a kind of, I had a like for the military. Um, so that's kind of why I went that route. How did you choose to go into the military that eventually led to this awesome career that you're living now? Yeah, and, and that's a great question, one which I'm rarely asked. But, uh, you know, and, and, and again, to uh, revert back uh, to that time mentally, um, I was in a very precarious situation. I could have went left or right and uh, versus staying on the, on the narrow pathway. But I had a friend who's passed away since then. He and I made a deal. We, we went to college uh, initially on football aspirations, and I was on a football scholarship. Like, like yourself, didn't do well academically in high school, just did enough to get by. Um, uh, my parents weren't college educated and, and didn't really, I mean, the whole college uh, uh, process, I had to uh, kind of find my way through because they just didn't have the skill set to uh, help me navigate that system. And so my first attempt at, uh, at school was not a good one. I, I mean, I loved to play football and I loved all that athletics brought me at that time. Um, but uh, I found myself at a crossroads and um, I made a deal. My best friend and I had made a deal that if either one, either one of us dropped out of school, we would get out of the Delta in Northeast Louisiana by going into the military mm -hmm. because I saw that as a clear pathway. Now, the educational component wasn't even important to me at that time. However, when I um, got into the military, I was able to, um, to see that, uh, you know, sit through these uh, courses. Because I, I tell a, young, a lot of young kids, they say, oh, I don't want to go. I don't want, I'm, I'm going to the military. I don't want to go to college because I hate school. I'm like, well, 
military is the worst place to go if you hate school. Because <laughs> if you are a tank driver, you're going to go to school to learn how to drive a tank. If you are a mechanic or whatever you do in the military, there is a school associated with it, as you can attest to. Right. And so I tell anybody that says, oh, I don't want to go to school. I want to go to the military. I'm like, well, let me just tell you, there's a lot of schooling with the military. As you, you know, the, the professional uh, military education courses that you get throughout your career, um, whether you're enlisted or an officer. And, um, and so I, I, I wanted to throw that out for anyone that may uh, hear my voice in, in this podcast regarding that, um, that, you know, the education is very important in the military and you get that throughout your career, just like we do as nurses, if you're a lifelong learner. And that's what I've learned. I'm a lifelong learner. And to answer your question, that was the, uh, again, the genesis for me going to school. I had made a pact with my best friend and I was the first one to drop out of college at that time. And he said, I guess you're going to be joining the military. So I started making my rounds with the recruiters and um, and uh, ended up meeting a recruiter who uh, told it like it was, didn't lie to me. He said, you see all that stuff you saw in the recruiting film? He said, that's all poppycock. That's not how it is. And he said, but we use that to lure people in the door and we show this to high school <laughs> kids and so forth and so on. But he was very frank and honest. And even after I joined the military and went to Alaska, he and I stayed friends for a period of time, probably a good four or five years until he retired. And I kind of lost track of him at that point. But that, that's kind of how it all how it started for me. And thanks for asking that question, because very few people ask me what prompted me um, to, to, to go the military route. Yeah, that, and I think it's it's an important uh, is I think it's an important thing to ask, just because, like I said, um, we so many people think of the military as a way of you know getting to the next step of their life, right? Sure. Uh, and, and especially with me, I know I, I I lacked direction, and one of the things the military did do, I didn't go to school in the military. I I, I dropped out a couple of times because because of deployments. Not because of, but, but I had to, I had some growing up to do before I went back to school and I did really well when I went back, but I just didn't have that uh, drive in high school or after high school to be, to be, I just didn't have the, and same with you. My mom was a, was a, um, I'm a first gen college graduate as well. So it's, uh, um, so um, even though my mom, my mom, my mom's graduated from college a couple of times now since, uh, but then she's doing fantastic. But, uh, but yeah, but we, uh, we didn't have a whole lot growing up or I didn't have, or we, we, was my mom and I didn't have a whole lot growing up. Uh, So this was, uh, it's important. The humble beginnings are certainly, certainly one of those spaces, you know, but, but again, I think um, it's like how you take advantage of it. I just didn't Mm -hmm. have a break in service for 30 I'm at my 37th year in uniform since 1987. So whatever that 30 plus years, I'll retire at the end of this calendar year with 29 years active duty. So again, I have no complaints, um, but I didn't, I never had a break in service. And if I had to design my career on paper from high school to wherever, I could never design it as well as it's gone for me. Um, And like you said, coming from humble beginnings, and that's why I give people a point of reference where I'm from, where the Doug Dynasties got guys are <laughs> in West Monroe, Louisiana. That's my hometown. And so um, for a minority uh, person coming out of that space, um, you know, I'm a black face that's not in a lot of, diff- you know, in, in these spaces that you would see now uh, from a leadership perspective, from a nursing perspective uh, and, um, you know, a fellow, you know, double fellowed and things like that. But it's also a culmination of all the people that invested time and energy into this guy 
you know, and, um, and that's what we both are, uh, yeah. you know, a product of those environments that we come from. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, trying to, uh, minimize my, my upbringing, because I think it, there's something special about growing up in that environment and, and you can't quantify grit. You know, <laughs> I've never seen that on any survey that I've taken about grit and tenacity that can't be quantified. And I think that's what we exhibit uh, yeah. in this space. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate your voice and your uh, and your contribution. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, now, fast forward uh, a few years and uh, let's talk about uh, your work now. Uh, well, before we get there, I really want to ask you what I really want to ask you is that like uh, you you've done quite a bit. You've been to Afghanistan. You've been to the Ebola response. That one component scares the bejesus out of me. Uh, you've done COVID work. How how have those experiences been for you? Well, what has been your role and um, and and how have those experiences kind of shaped, formed your career? Well, you know, I, I've had some good nurse leaders that have uh, uh, given me the opportunity to be in these spaces. One comes to mind is Rear Admiral Susan Orsega, who is the uh, uh, senior advisor to the uh, uh, Ash right now, the Assistant Secretary for Health, Dr. Rachel Levine. Um, one that comes to mind too is uh, uh, Rear Admiral Trent Adams. Both both of these, and Rear Admiral Trent Adams has retired, and she's here in Texas at UNT Health Sciences Center. But she, uh, th- those folks have put me in a position to succeed, and uh, saw something in me, uh, and and put me in a position as a nurse exec, nurse leader in these emergency preparedness spaces. And, um, and those, uh, those opportunities, every opportunity or whether I wanted to or not, I've taken advantage of those opportunities that have been given me. And what I did early on in my career, as you well know, um, in, your, in your military career or your uniform services career, when I transitioned to public health service uh, over 20 years ago, I, I never had no in my vocabulary. Um, I was just telling a colleague uh, earlier via email um, that he said, well, CMS doesn't go abroad. I was like, actually, that's not true. I have a mentee that's in a small office in CMS that does overseas missions. And they do, they confer with other governments. But uh, with the federal government, I've been to the USVI. Um, I've been to Saipan, Guam, um, uh, Japan, Korea, and Afghanistan, some good, some not. But these emergency preparedness spaces as a nurse leader and a nurse exec has put me in spaces um, uh, for global health that I never thought I'd be in. And people like, well, what kind of formal training do you have? I'm like, on the job. That's the formal training that I have. It's been on the job training. Because as you indicated earlier, going to uh, Africa was uh, uh, intimidating. I mean, extremely intimidating. Because most of the time in uniform, you like an enemy that you can see. And, you know, Ebola, you couldn't see. You couldn't see until they were in the wet phase, right? And they were, uh, you know... Uh, hemorrhaging and, and other things going on in that space. Um, but <clears throat> so my biggest fear there was getting everybody home alive on the team, not worrying about my own safety. I, as you can imagine, your loved ones are, are panicked and freaked out because we don't know a lot about this disease. Same thing with COVID. Um, didn't know a lot about COVID. We knew some things and, you know, everything has morphed and, and pivoted as we moved along with CDC and the guidance that we've received from WHO and others. And sometimes the guidance is conflicting because the data is still coming out. And every time someone comes out with a new study, it has to be validated. It has to be uh, you know, uh, 
uh, put through the ringers to to make sure it's it's legitimate. And um, and so I guess those are some of the high points in my career. Those responses that you referred to, but here in Region Six, HHS Region Six, we've had going back to Hurricane Katrina in '05. Um, we've we've had a number of uh, I've had a number of experiences along the U.S.-Mexico border, the unaccompanied children that you talked about, which is almost happens yearly here in in Region Six. Had an opportunity to deal with that. Uh, the number of hurricanes, wildfires that we're dealing with currently in New Mexico in our region, and um, floods and anything else, almost everything but locusts and famine, we've had to deal with here in HHS Region 6. And we have the dubious distinction of having more federally declared disasters than any other region in the nation. And, and so if you ask me, have I had an opportunity to sharpen my tools? Absolutely. Not by I uh, wanting to do that, but because being in being here in this region, you almost have to do it. And you know as well as I do, the populations that are usually adversely affected are the at-risk populations from the beginning. They're just uh, magnified uh, in the time of crises. And so trying to build that resiliency uh, and, and capacity within the community and within the region uh, uh, has been like come out, kind of my life's work, uh, uh, you know, uh, in uniform has been my life, life's work there. Uh, well, thank you for all the work that you've done. It's amazing. The only reference I have to Ebola is when we when we started training all of our uh, all of our staff uh, for how to put on and take off PPE as it related to Ebola. Uh, that's really the, my only exposure to it, uh, thankfully. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, now you now one of the things that we before we started recording, I I I mentioned to you, is I don't I didn't I don't know the scope uh, of the USPHS. Um, yeah. And and if you can talk about that, why you are uh, why you are part of the uniform services, but we don't really hear about it that much. Uh, sure. And what's what's the role and how it impacts it, really everybody. Sure. And, and you know, and, 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 and it's in the name, the, the U.S. Public Health Service. We've been around since 1876, uh, one of the oldest uniformed services. Um, this service, you know, there are eight uniformed services right now, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard. You can think of those off the top right. of your hand because those are the armed services. Then you have Space Force, which is the newest uh, uniformed services. You have uh, NOAA, the National uh, National Ocean. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration guys. Now, I call them the hurricane hunters. That's usually the easiest way to describe those guys. And then you have the U.S. Public Health Service. Most people can identify with the public health service if you, if, uh, in our age group, if we bring up C. Everett Coop, um, because everyone knew the Surgeon General C. Everett Coop. He brought the uniform back. He was an imposing figure from uh, New Hampshire, from Dartmouth. Um, I think he was a pediatrician, if I, my memory serves me correctly. And he had a nice beard, wore the uniform, was very striking, and he also put the labels on cigarettes. You know, if you look at the pack of a side of side of the pack of cigarettes, you know, it says that Surgeon General's warning, and that was the first Surgeon General's warning that we, you know, again, our generation can uh, can attest to uh, that the Surgeon General had had a big uh, and 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 let me just be clear, that was very controversial at the time and almost cost him his job, but he was adamant about putting that on cigarettes because the data was overwhelming. Um, but the public health service, we, we serve in all 50 states, territories, 
and around the world uh, with the FDA, a number of agencies, but some of the bigger agencies are FDA, Indian Health Services, uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons, uh, Immigration, uh, uh, Custom Enforcement. Uh, we, we serve at NIH, um, uh, CMS, as I, I'm with CMS. And um, so we serve all across the government. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, we had public health hospitals. But uh, as a cost-cutting measure because of inflation under President Reagan, those hospitals were closed down and the commission corps officers were farmed out to other agencies. So we still wear the uniform. I'm considered a captain, as you indicated, equivalent to a 06 colonel and um, or captain in the Navy, as you're aware of. But, uh, um, you know, so so we work in all facets of uh, response and recovery uh, for the U.S. government. And we're your first line of defense for anything public health. We're at CDC. I omitted that. A lot of our officers at CDC have been working 24 hours a day in this COVID space in their operations center. And the Surgeon General has an operations center we call the cell, which I was in DC working in that one as well. And we stand that up anytime there's a national crisis that we have to respond to or international crisis for that matter. We stand that up and we work alongside our, uh, our DOD and VA counterparts. There's a, there in the national uh, emergency plan or uh, a national emergency plan, there's a, uh, 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 essential function called ESF-8. And ESF-8, who sits on that council, that's all the federal assets that are responsible for health. And so public health sits on that, DOD health sits on that, VA sits on that, and a few other smaller uh, agencies that you may or may not be aware of that we sit on what they call the ESF-8 council. And that council determines what federal assets, DMAT teams, uh, disaster medical uh, assistance teams that are available to be utilized in the government, federal government's arsenal. We may have come to a state near you or some of our listeners uh, for COVID, uh, um, for uh, monoclonal antibody therapy, for COVID response and helping our states when they were overwhelmed or local communities. So I was in DC and I was able to send officers to, uh, uh, to tribal communities to assist that were overwhelmed, uh, Navajo Nation and other nations, uh, tribal nations that were overwhelmed uh, by the pandemic. And we sent them all, all across the country to Puerto Rico and as far away as uh, or, uh, Guam. Uh, we sent uh, assets there as well. And then, of course, you have your officers that are assigned to WHO uh, working in that space. And most of these uh, folks are nurses and docs and epi, epi types that are, that are working and cut their teeth in that space. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, it's, it's the sort of a, um, like, you don't, you don't really see it, right? Uh, you don't, uh, and it's not very much like publicized, like this is what we're doing. So uh, it's amazing that, that there's uh, these uh, tentacles that are really global uh, and making impact and change. And uh, so thank you. Thank you for that explanation. Um, sure. uh, I, uh, now, now here's another question for you, just because I think from a nursing perspective, we don't uh, when we, th you know, uh, as it's one of one of my pain points that we don't, and one of the reasons I have this podcast is we don't hear enough about what nursing does outside of direct bedside care, right? Um, so if uh, if somebody was listening to this and didn't know you existed uh, and wanted to, uh, how do how does somebody come into your arena and make a career out of it? Um, yeah, you great great question. You know, um, my career path is non-traditional. Um, I haven't, I'm a nurse practitioner by training. 
Um, but I don't routinely see patients. I do in disaster uh, 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 response. Um, I had when I was in Africa and, and, and down on the U.S.-Mexico border and things like that and during hurricane responses. But you're right. The easiest place to go, we are well-kept secret. We don't have enlisted officers that you can come, I mean, enlisted uh, personnel where you can matriculate right out of high school into the U.S. Public Health Service. We come in previously degree doctors, nurses, um, dentists, um, uh, therapists, pharmacists, and the like. So you can go to usphs.gov. And again, that's United States Public Health Service.gov. And you can get a lot of information. We've also started a reserve component. When I initially came into the U.S. Public Health Service, or what we affectionately call the Corps, when I came into the Corps, um, we had a reserve component. And that went away because of legislative changes and so forth and um, reorganization of uh, assets across DOD and, uh, and some of the drawdowns that occurred. But that ready reserve has been stood back up. But again, all that information is available on the USPHS.gov. And so if you want to be what we call a weekend warrior, a healthcare warrior, there's opportunities. If you want to do it full time, there, there are opportunities. You have to do the same kind of commissioning physicals. Or if you remember back when we went to MEPS and we joined the military, um, you still have to go through a qualifying uh, a physical to make sure that you, you don't have any uh, 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 disqualifying uh, ailments, uh, medical uh, uh, issues that are going on that may limit your ability to, uh, to do your job in an emergent, uh, urgent situation. So usphs.gov, and I'll throw that out for the last time as, as my PSA for the Public Health Service. Awesome. And well, I already actually have that link set up on your website. So when the, when this podcast goes live, it will be on the uh, RN Mentor website. So, uh, right. so fantastic. Um, now I have a, so what, is there an age limit where people can join like there's in the military? There is. There, uh, usually the age limit was 40, and I think we've increased it for nurses to 44 because of the nursing shortage. And, and one thing I, I did want to add, and I didn't uh, address this with you in, in your former question, your, your initial question, was uh, uh, the non-traditional uh, scope of work that I do. So right now I sit in CMS and I'm over about, uh, or I, I me, me, as well as my team, we, uh, we're over about 2,000 nursing homes for wow. HHS Region 6, a thousand of those sit, uh, effectively sit here in Texas. And so we're over about, we do uh, survey uh, operations uh, for long-term care for about 2,000 of those nursing homes. And, and so it's very equivalent to joint commission if you're not familiar with uh, uh, the, uh, the state operations manual for long-term care and the, uh, the, the federal tags or uh, federal deficiency citations that go along with uh, long-term care to ensure that our beneficiaries, the health and safety of our beneficiaries uh, in the regions or across the nation. But that's another space um, that if one would, tell, would have told me that, hey, you would be uh, the branch chief for this division uh, across five states and over 2,000 nursing homes, I was like, well, you bumped your head because number one, I don't know what you're talking about. And number two, I'll be touching patients until the day I die because that was where my passion is. And what I found personally is that my impact is greater over five states than it is with, you know, working in a hospital or working in a clinic where I'm seeing, you know, a patient panel of however many, you know, uh, a few hundred patients where right. now I have the capacity to, and with the public health service, I not only have the capacity to help a few states, I have, a, I have the capacity to help the nation or an international community, a global community. So I wanted to throw that out 
thank, well. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that's one of the, uh, <clears throat> sometimes I, I when, I'm, when I'm talking to colleagues that are bedside or doing that one-on-one -on -one care, they can't see themselves not doing that one-on-one -on -one care because it's a different kind of satisfaction, right? It's a different Absolutely. kind of an impact. You don't always see that smile on the face when you discharge a patient that's all better right uh, but right. you have to you have to stretch your own imagination and look at the 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 sort of the the larger picture of how many right. people you're impacting yeah and you, and you look at the global impact i mean you know if i'm waiting around to get uh, uh, a bouquet of flowers from family members or get the uh, uh you know the the tiff's cookie treats at my door from a satisfied client necessarily, uh, that doesn't often happen. But um, what I can say that I'm excited about my job every day. And, and I don't say that because, oh, I work for the government and I'm at the end of my uh, career in the military. I, I mean, I really wake up to do an impact. My wife can tell you I'm chomping at the bit uh, to do my work. I'm passionate about it. I mean, and I hope that shines through in this podcast. I, I'm excited. I'll talk to a stop sign if they want to know about what I do for CMS as a nurse consultant. And if you're interested in a job as a nurse consultant with CMS, and I've just hired three nurses, I've hired two RNs and one NP. And I, and I hired the NP from a level one trauma center, which is almost unheard of. And I'm just uh, ecstatic about what we do. And if you're interested, go to USA Jobs and look under HHS nurse consultant um, for, for something in that space. But uh, Love what we do, and, um, and and wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. I really, I, I really, uh, really uh, must admit that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, now you mentioned some of the uh, some of the mentors you've had in your in your career, and sort of the military structure is really set up for that. Um, uh, personally, coming out of the military, it's been a little bit more challenging because I was in the military for ten years, and I was like, oh, I know. There's always somebody that's going looking after you, uh, and you know, especially when they see potential. Um, I had a hard time leaving because I was bribed with a promotion, <laughs> like a week before I, it was my discharge date. I'm like, no, 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 I can't. No. I gotta go. Uh, yeah. But um, so it's been a little bit more challenging. And again, another reason this podcast came kind of came to be because I want to make sure people are hearing more and more from from the people that are really successful in, in different arenas of the profession um, and, and, their, and their pathway of getting there. Um, now, you're coming to the end of your military career, right? Uh, and you're still super young. Uh, so what is uh, next for you? And how do you see, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to preload pre this for you. How do you see yourself mentoring others as you move forward in your professional career? Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think the mentoring ever stops for us as nurses, whether you're mentoring people in your church, synagogue, mosque, uh, mosque wherever. Um, I, I don't I think it's innate to nursing. You know, some of us, you know, my wife's a nurse and she doesn't warm up to that necessarily the mentoring piece in the whole nine yards. I push her in that space. She just wants to see patients and go to her meeting and get her CEUs and go home. That's not a bad thing. Right. right. That's not a bad thing. But we have to meet people where they are. And my mentoring will continue through AAMP, through other avenues. I have mentees all over the country and a couple that are international because their husbands are in DOD and they've uh, graduated from nursing school and they're 
overseas with their spouses. But we meet on Zoom just like, you know, we, there's so much interconnectivity now. The only thing that she has to do is get up in the middle of the night and meet with me because I'm not getting up in the middle of the night right now. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm the senior. So I feel like if I can take the time, then she can, you know, uh, do a day or two uh, every couple months to meet. But I, I meet with people uh, all the time and I don't think that'll stop. Uh, I do have an adjunct faculty position at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center there in Lubbock. And so anytime there's an opportunity for me to educate uh, the masses about either the public health service, uh, HHS, emergency preparedness, nursing, uh, not necessarily in that order, I, I, will, I will do it because their career has given me much more than I believe that I could ever give it, uh, give back to the profession of nursing and to the body of knowledge. And so I'm just very fortunate in that regard, but I don't, I don't see that changing. I, I uh, one of the things that I did is because I am a old crusty and old sea dog, I, uh, by self-admission, right. Um, we can, we can say that because we're, we're dealing with, uh, <laughs> personnel and we know what that means. It's not derogatory in any regard, but, uh, um, but, but I hired a young person who was like 26, um, brand new nurse practitioner, dual, dual certified. I think she's family and, and psych. And um, I hired her because she coaches me about how to interact with my younger peers, right? Because I come from a very rigid environment. I only know the government and, and, and when in charge, take charge. And right now I'm at the top of the dog pile, so to speak, of being in charge in most instances. Right. And so I need that young person um, to guide me. And they're going to give you everything they got usually from nine to five, but 501, they want to be at happy hour. And I need to understand that they're not going to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day like my generation necessarily. And I would argue that that's not necessarily healthy what I do, but that's how I was ingrained and uh, brought up in the career and what have you. But I don't see that changing, but I think it's reciprocal, bi-directional in terms of me being mentored and me mentoring folks as I move forward. Yeah, but very well said. And that's that's one of the things I, I still have. Uh, I, I have issues with just because my career in the military, there was no such thing as overtime or necessarily uh, when is my time off or weekends and stuff like that. You kind of are like, what? You're gone for three weeks. You're gone for three weeks. That's what you're doing. Yeah. You're deploying or you're right. here or you're away for six months. And, you know, right. those are um, those are just right. those lines. Get, those lines, can, you know, those lines, unfortunately, get blurred for people like me. And then you apply that to other people. And I have civilian personnel that work. Right. I have a few people in uniform, but half <laughs> my staff civilian. And so there are implications when I ask them to stay beyond their eight and a half hour date. There are financial implications for my organization. And so, and they have a master labor agreement as well for the union. So I have to be cognizant of all those right. things when I'm asking them to do, whether it's travel or what have you. You know, for you and I, if we're deployed, we're deployed. You're 24 seven, 365 not even a question. And, um, and so when you're dealing with others and particularly some of our younger colleagues, um, we have to be understanding and, and understand that there, there are parameters around that. And so again, being an old salty dog, trying to learn new tricks as we move along exactly. um, has, uh, has, has proven to be beneficial in the hiring practices as well. Awesome, thank you for that. I wanna be cognizant of your time. Uh, anything else that you wanna share uh, with our audience? Well, um, no, and, and thank you. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's certainly a, a privilege to share, uh, share your podcast with you. And as I share with you early on in our pre-production work, we, uh, 
um, I, I've been kind of stalking you from the perimeter and um, not, <laughs> not expecting an opportunity to do this or wanting an opportunity to do this uh, podcast, but certainly uh, uh, recognizing a lot of the players uh, on, on your uh, on your podcast. And, 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 now, and that's pretty goddamn cool. That's pretty doggone cool that, you know, one of our own has done this and understand the mentoring. But one of the things I would say is that if you're having a hard time finding a mentor or an executive coach or the like, um, go to Upworks, go to uh, uh, Fiverr and find a find an executive coach that you can afford. Um, but also remember what you pay is what you get. But uh, look at look for an executive coach. And I would encourage you not they don't have to necessarily be in nursing. I mm-hmm. have coaches that aren't nurses. Because I, I, I don't want a slanted view of the conversation. I can find nurse exec leaders to mentor me, and I've had some good ones. Uh, and, uh, but, but I would encourage you to look at, a, look at a mentor, look at an executive coach that can be objective and help you process this. I've had an executive coach since I was a lieutenant commander. So going back to like 2008, 2010, I've had an executive coach. Now I have to say she's a psychologist as well. So I've been very fortunate to get a twofer, right? Uh, get the behavioral health component of that, as well as the executive coach piece. Um, but uh, I know Duke has an executive uh, coach program or a health coach uh, program, and you may be able to find someone out of that program. And I'm not advocating for Duke. I'm sure there are many others as well. Um, but I, I, my coach came out of that program, and I've been with her paying out of pocket since, like I said, 2008, right around the time I was going back and forth to Afghanistan. And so um, I just felt like I needed someone to help me get through the program and I'm, uh, you know, get through the, uh, I said the program, the program of life, so to speak, or nursing in my career and in the U S public health service. And it served me well. It served me well. I, uh, I, uh, did a, uh, below zone, below zone promotion to 06 and she was very instrumental in me finishing my DMP on time, which I tried to drop out of the program twice. Uh, but she thought it was ill-advised and, and, and made me stay the course. And so, uh, uh, when I got my degree, I photocopied her a copy. I said, well, this is your second uh, doctoral degree because she's a she's a psych, psy D, I think, the psych uh, doctor. And I sent her a copy of mine because I felt like she deserved it as well, because she really talked me off the ledge quite a few times in terms of I'm pulling the trigger. I'm, 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 I'm going to pull the parachute on this when I'm done. You know, <laughs> it was overwhelming and the like. And so but 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 I but I think uh, is the last parting words is to. Uh, consider uh, getting a coach or a mentor outside of nursing. Um, nursing, nursing, uh, you, you definitely want one there, um, but but certainly uh, look outside of nursing and, and, and figure out what your shortfalls are to, to identify that person that you need. One of the things I see a lot with our nurse colleagues, a lot of us are, are not, uh, uh, we, we, we can't read spreadsheets and, uh, and the like with, uh, with uh, and, and not, not a lot, but I, I've seen it more with nursing in the government, for sure. Um, we, we have a hard time reading these budgets and creating budgets and doing things like that because it's not innate to what we do. Um, but having that business savvy, that's one of the things that was a shortfall for me. So I needed to get someone, a nurse colleague that was really strong in that area to help me with my, what I needed for the government. Well, right now I run the entire budget for our division, uh, for all of uh, CMS Dallas. And so that's, a, that's quite a chunk of change that I'm responsible for. So all of that comes through me. And uh, that's a skill set that I had to develop that, you know, I've never had to have uh, ne- never had to utilize that. And, you know, with DOD or the uniform services, they tell you what you have and that's it. Or someone else is stroking the check. But when you're the one that's the gatekeeper for those resources, 
it takes on a whole different meaning. Yeah, yeah, I I hundred percent agree. Actually, within my own university, I have a non-nurse mentor um, right. that you know uh, she she's got experience within the university and she's got uh, experience that I don't have within the university. So navigating the university uh, ins and outs is something that you know she's 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 uh, yeah. she's she's a genius at. So. Um, so, yeah, so I appreciate that advice because it's very true. Uh, and I'll have to look up these executive coach uh, uh, names you you dropped. So, uh, yeah. so I'll put that on the on the on the website, too, as soon as I find them. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic uh, speaking with you. Uh, we have been listening to Captain James Dickens. Uh, he is a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Services Commission Corps. Uh, and I look forward to uh, your career after this. I'm looking forward to see what you do next. Uh, so thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.